Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello. and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance TNA. Later on in the show, we'll hear about the chemical element strontium. But first up, Victoria University of Wellington PhD student Daniel Donahue is interested in behavioural innovation. He's curious about our smartest birds, Kaka and Kia, and he wonders how they learn new things. I meet him at Zelandia Sanctuary in Wellington, where he is putting some kaka to the test. What I've got here is basically a little, what I call a kaka well. So basically there's a tube with a little bucket in it, and in there is a liquid they really like to drink. And so if they can pull this bucket up by a string, then they can uh, drink the liquid that's in there. Ah, so this is a, an intelligence test with a tasty treat if they can achieve it. Something like that. So this one specifically is looking at their ability to learn from a screen. So there's a video playing next to the uh, kaka well there, which has another kaka which is demonstrating how to do it. And then at another site, there's the same setup but without the demonstrator video. And so it's basically to see if the ones at this site will actually look at the screen and learn faster as a result of the social information they're getting. Okay, now there was a bird popping around. Is she still there? Uh, I'm not sure. Not sure. We can actually get in there and have a closer look at it. Let's do that, yeah. So we're next to some kaka feeders, which are always in place at Zelandia. So you know this is a good hub for kaka. Oh, look, it's kaka television. That's what it is, yeah, little kaka movie theatres. So that's a video which I've recorded with a captive one up at Namanu Nature Reserve in Kapiti to try and act as a demonstration tool. Did it take long for that bird in the video to learn what to do? No, so he's got a slightly different setup. So he's still got the string with the little bucket, but the bucket's not hidden from him. And so when they can actually see the bucket, they pull it up pretty much immediately. Okay, Um, so I've done stories here before, and if you put a a nut on the end of a piece of string, it doesn't take them more than a few seconds to work out. I just need to pull the string up. Exactly. So they can look at that and they can put it together that if I pull the string, that'll get closer to me. It's a lot harder for them in this situation because they can't actually see the bucket. So there's a little cap over top which the string's attached to, so they have to pull up the cap and then pull up the string. So they have to discover that first and then actually pull it up without knowing that the bucket's there. Oh, so this is quite tricky. And you've got a little GoPro there, so you're filming what's going on? Yeah, so there's three GoPros set up there, and partly that's just in case one of them fails and you just end up with no footage. The other thing is that some of the birds are banded, in which case I can get their IDs from the bands, and that's relatively straightforward. Some of them are unbanded, and so I have to identify them through, you know, plumage, or beak markings, things like that. So you really need that close-up, multiple-angle footage to be able to do that. It's a very very tedious job, but it's doable. How long have you been running this testing for? So this particular test is about three weeks in. And in that time, 
how many birds have been to visit? Have you been able to work that out? I've just been going through the videos now. and So you end up with three cameras at each site. So that's 30 hours of footage a day. Um, so it's, you can't keep up with it basically in real time. Um, so I'm about three days in and there's been about 90 visits probably by about 12 to 15 individuals, I would think. Um, so that probably picks up as they go. So even though it's really close to the existing feeders, they still actually have to discover it, uh, which can take them a little while. So how many hours a day each day is this set up? So this is set up five hours each day. And same at the other one? Same at the other one. So where's the other one? Is that by the other set of kaka feeders? It is, yep. Hence the cameras, because you couldn't even conceivably begin to keep an eye on no, two setups. No, I've, I've tried that before, and it doesn't work out well. <laughs> so have you had any birds that have managed to succeed pulling up the string? Yep, yep. So there's sort of different ways they can get about it. With dealing with an animal like kaka or kia, anything like that, just animals in general, you'll give them a task being like, here's the thing you can do, and they'll always figure out a different way of doing it. So they've figured out how to do it, but some in their own way. So some have figured out that you can pull up the string and hold it in your foot, and that way the bucket stays up and you can actually feed from it. That's what I thought they would have to do. Some of them have figured out if you just yank the string really hard, then the food just splashes everywhere and you can just lick it up from that. Um, Others have just figured out you can come after someone else has done it and lick up the uh, food that they've spilled. Oh, and that's a tiaki coming to investigate, but that clearly won't be able to solve this puzzle. No, you do get a lot of attention from them and the hee the bellbirds as well. They, um, I don't know if they think it's a potential nest box or, or what it is, but they do like to check it out. Well, shall we back away a bit from the, the, the set-up? Uh, we, we can or we can stay here. The kaka won't the actually... kaka don't mind? They won't mind if we're here. Oh, that's good to know. I think it actually increases the chances of them coming if we are here because they get curious what you're up to in the bush. So they'll uh, come and investigate. Tell me about the big picture of the project you're working on. Uh, so this is part of my PhD. So I'm looking at both kaka and kia. So they're both nestor parrots, so they're the only ones in that genus. So quite closely related but quite far removed from all the other parrots around the world. And basically I'm looking at sort of the way that new information enters their communities or their world basically so whether that's innovating new behaviours or how they learn uh, from each other basically whatever facilitates the uptake of something new Um, so I've been looking at social learning as a big part of it so that's partly what this is just to see if they can use information from others to accelerate their own learning process And some of the other things I've done is looking at social networks, so the linkages between individuals, and also sort of personality-based differences, so what actually motivates each individual to engage in a task. Are they interested in that video screen in there? They showed some interest in it initially, so they would watch it, and some of them would even sort of flinch at it, you know, not sure exactly what was going on. As they've gotten used to it, you know, they, I am not entirely sure they're paying attention to it now, but I do have something later on where I'll run a, a validation experiment to just kind of try and assess whether or not they can actually process the images in the way that we would hope. 
I was going to ask that because what do we know about bird vision? What do we imagine they might be able to see of that video? I mean, we've designed video to work for us and the way our brains work. Mm. So there's definite differences in the way that colour is perceived. Um, so they have basically a, a wider spectrum of light that they can actually see. Um, but there has been work done using videos, which is quite compelling, but it seems to vary between species and what sort of information you're actually showing them. So with Kaka, no one's actually tried to assess that, so uh, we'll wait and see, and hopefully they actually um, can see what's going on and it's not just a blur of light and images. So you're testing the Kaka here at Zelandia in Wellington. Where are you testing Kia? Uh, so the work with Kia has been done in captivity, so that's been done down at Willow Bank, which is a wildlife reserve in Christchurch. And you ran the Kia through the same experiments? So the Kia got given a different experiment. So theirs was uh, something similar. So it still had a, an apparatus they could operate to get food out of, uh, but it was basically a parrot vending machine. Ooh, incoming. So who's this? So we have a guest. So this one's an unbanded bird. But you can see he's got a very small blonde patch on his chest. And that is the easiest way for me to identify this individual. So but do you recognise him? I recognise him just by that small little patch there. So he's visited before? Yep. Do I've... you have any idea what he achieved last time he visited? I don't remember, actually. I think he's been doing quite well at it. Oh, he's pulling at the cap. Yeah, so you can see he's trying to throw the cap over the edge to keep the string up long enough to actually feed from it. So completely ignoring the TV screen. Yes. Yeah, so you can see he's just yanked that and spilled the oh, food so everywhere. this is the um, yank and spill strategy. That is what that is, yeah. <laughs> but he's also left the, um, the cap hanging over the edge, which will uh, you know, help keep the bucket up for a bit. And it looks like he's having great success getting some of that tasty water. What's in there? So that's a Australian-made honey eater mix, and so it's designed for basically lorikeets or anything else which feeds on nectar. So nectar is a big part of the carcass diet. And he's done. He's off. He's climbed up the tree, and he's very kindly left the lid off for whoever might come along next. He he has done that. It's <laughs> it does have a weight on the bottom, so usually it'll drop back down without any issue. He's managed to <laughs> ruin that idea. No, he's not gone very far. He's just climbed into the trees above. Yes, hello, you. Yeah, they like to climb up there and then launch off. So that's a young bird, you said? Probably by kaka years. He's quite young, but not a juvenile. OK. So are you finding age differences between the birds that come to visit here? No. From what I can see, there's no notable differences, just at a nice glance. And what about differences between this setup with the video and the other setup without the video? I know it's early days. Are you getting any sense of a difference? I think one of the notable differences I'm sort of just observing is the amount of time they'll actually spend interacting with the apparatus. So over there they've got basically a still shot of this video and they've got the same noise, so there's no difference there. It's just the visual information that's different. And I think they're spending a lot less time there, so at this site, maybe actually seeing this individual on the screen doing something and getting food as a result of it gives them a little bit more motivation to kind of go, OK, there's, there is something here. If I can just 
figure it out, I'm going to get some food as well. Whereas at the other site, they don't have that. So I think they sort of come and check it out and then sort of go on their way and, you know, go, okay, I've, I had a look at it and didn't see anything of interest. Are you getting lots of repeat visits? So a bird like that one who was just here, who's managed to succeed in getting things, do you find that birds like that come back? Yeah. Um, some of them will even sort of set up camp above it and try and own it once they figure it out. So you get a bit of, bit of exclusion and competition for it. But yeah, mostly it's it's actually a small number of individuals. So we've got yeah, hundreds of kaka here. And being right next to the feeders, you'd think you'd get an enormous number kind of finding it and trying to use it. But it's actually just a small number that'll sort of go to the effort and uh, find it interesting enough to keep engaging with it. So do you think that that's something that happens then? So you have a small number of particularly curious exploratory birds who learn these novel behaviours and then over time that behaviour will spread or does it stay confined just to those novel birds? Do we have any sense about what happens in that situation? It's really hard to say. So most of the work done around the world which looks at the way you know, different species will acquire new information or figure new things out is done in captivity and so you're sort of stuck with a very limited sample size there um, and their behaviour isn't necessarily what it should be in the wild and here they are able to sort of go about their regular business as well as this and so it might just be a personality based thing that some individuals are just more curious and therefore more likely to figure it out or it could just be that some are more inclined to use this area, it might just be a favoured nap spot or, or whatever it might be. I did a story a few years ago now which was working with the existing feeders and, and creating modifications to those mm. that the birds had to work out, so putting a block under the treadle that they normally stand on, for instance. And if my memory serves me right, pretty much the juveniles worked out how to do it faster and the juveniles seemed to, in a sense, learn by copying others. Mm. But the older birds would not copy the juveniles. Yeah, so that was that was Julia's work, and that was the case with hers. And you can see sort of good reasons for that. There's something which is called prestige bias, which is basically copying someone who is cooler than you, basically, whether they outrank you or just have a higher social standing. So for an adult bird to copy a juvenile, that might just not be the way they do it. They might say, no, you're young, you don't know what you're doing. Whereas it does make sense for young individuals to copy others because you know they know a lot less, they're less experienced, and so that's just a way to sort of accelerate their learning process and uh, discover the world in a quicker way. So with the adults, I mean, they were more familiar with the feeders, so you also have a situation where... Basically, you can be conditioned to do things a certain way. We, as humans, experience this. We learn one thing one way, and then you've got to try and relearn it another way. And sometimes just that adaptability can be quite difficult and quite time-consuming. So yeah, we ma- get very set in our ways, don't we? We do get set in our ways. So there is a possibility that the adult kaka, with feeders they already know, are more set in their ways. And so when a block is put under it, they say, no, this is the way I do it and it should work, whereas a juvenile hasn't had that reinforcement going that it should work if I do this. 
Whereas something like this, which is an entirely new problem, might affect juveniles and adults the same way since they haven't had that prior conditioning to it. Are you going to try different problems with them? I've actually tried a bunch of different problems so already. tell me what you've already done. Uh, so the one I used with the Kia, which was like a, a vending machine where they can put a ball in to a box basically and it spits food out for them. I've tried doing that with the Kaka here. For some reason I could train a captive individual to do it, but not a wild one. And so that might just be the amount of time a captive individual is willing to spend with you trying to learn something difficult. The wild ones, they would just take the ball and run away and... It was just not, not getting off the ground. I did do another one which had a similar problem, but rather than picking a ball up, it was slid along a rail. So it was basically permanently attached, so they couldn't get it out. But they could slide it up and along and into a cup, and then food would be dispensed. By that, I did train some demonstrators for that, but the solution basically never caught on. So no one else learned to do it um, by observing them. So this is sort of plan C or D or whatever one I'm up to now. Um, Do you think there will be more iterations of it? uh, So I've got some plans to alter this over the next couple of weeks to look at some motivational differences. So one thing I found with the Kia is that even though they could get food basically for putting this ball into the cup, some of them were very food focused, whereas some of them would completely ignore the food just to grab another ball and keep interacting with it so it was basically a a play behavior which motivated some of them whereas some of them were entirely food motivated and what their motivation was affected how fast they learned the task so a more play-based motivation led to a faster learning rate and then someone who was just interested in food you know either didn't solve it or was slower to actually learn it so one thing I've noticed with the kaka with the previous studies I've done is that Basically, once they figure out a way to do things, sometimes they'll still just keep doing that, even if a better option's available. Like, even if you give them free food or this sort of solution they can work for, they'll work for some reason, you know. So rather than just taking the freebies, they'll go, no, no, I'll, I'll go and do this and, you know, get it the hard way. So I plan to run something similar with this afterwards, where basically they'll have free food available or the well where they can pick up the, the string in the bucket and just see if there's differences in terms of who prefers to do what and if that's correlated with the rate at which they actually learned to solve the puzzle initially. That's really interesting about how rewarding they find play. Yeah, so play used to be one of those things that was you know, sort of considered a human thing and then you know we included primates and monkeys and then mammals and now you know, we've got it pretty well described and you know everything from mammals to invertebrates and the kia is one of the most renowned species for play especially in birds um, so some work which was done in arthur's pass a couple of years ago showed that you know they even have vocalizations so they can invoke play with others by doing this specific call now this is a different bird because this is a banded bird coming in so this is the one we saw initially when we were waiting out there looking in. So she came and had a look, but didn't actually engage with it. And she's back and the lid is still off, so let's see what she does. She is approaching slowly. So even with the lid off, she's still going to have to pull the bucket up if she wants to. um, It's probably not high enough to drink out of as it is. So is this one a return visitor? 
was today her first day, do you know? Um, she's definitely been in this area before. I don't know if she's actually engaged with the task. You see she's struggling to take that leap of faith to actually get on there and give it a go. Which is to say she's standing on the roof, or now oh, she's dropped down to the feeding platform. And she's sticking her beak and head down towards the bucket. Oh, she just gave herself a fright because she pulled the string, the lid popped back into the container because, as she said, it had a weight on it, and that gave her enough of a fright that she's flown away, but not very far. No, it looks like she's going to come back and try it again. So, yeah, they are very skittish, um, surprisingly skittish. She's back. Oh, okay, good. She gave it a good yank and spilled a whole lot of stuff and gets a reward. Is her lid still out or did it just... No, so the lid's popped back on over the, uh, over the, the tube there. So another messy way of approaching mm-hmm. it. So now she's busy drinking at the moment. Well, so she gave the lid a yank, spilled a whole lot of the treaty water again, but gave herself another slight fright in the process. I think some of them are just more boisterous, and so some of them will actually just enjoy the sounds that it makes. Same with the feeders, you know, you can hear those clanging in the background, and they're so noisy. I think some individuals actually enjoy that. It's um, a little bit of excitement. Well, because they are all so different in that there are all such individuals, do you think you're going to be able to make any grand conclusions from the experiments? Oh, I mean, I'm hoping to. I mean, obviously that would be nice. It's sort of helped, I think, by the work I've already got done with Kia. So there's some quite quite strong findings there, some quite good results. And so being such a closely related species, if I can find something just of a similar trend, then that will add quite a lot of weight to it. I'm not so sure about the social learning element yet. That's, I mean, there's, there's just something about parrots. I've talked to other people in this field, and there's just something we're not quite getting right when it comes to social learning studies on parrots. You know, if, if I can find something has worked with the screens, that would be great. Um, but we'll see. We'll see if that's the case. Thanks, Daniel. Daniel Donoghue is a PhD student at Victoria University of Wellington, and he's studying the smart kaka at Zelandia Sanctuary. And while we're on the subject of birds, the 2019 Bird of the Year competition has kicked off. Do jump online and vote for your favourite, birdoftheyear.org.nz. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori, hei hōtaka e pāna ki tō tātou au whānui. I'm Alison Balance, and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, let's get chemical again as we celebrate 150 years of the periodic table in the Elemental podcast. Here's Alan Blackman from Auckland University of Technology. Today's chemical element strontium is in fact named after the Scottish town Strontian, with an N. And that indeed is the UK's only claim to fame in terms of elemental names on the periodic table. So, why this little town of Strontian that uh, probably very few people have heard of? It's because a new mineral, which was called strontianite, which is better known as strontium carbonate, was in fact found in a lead mine at Strontian. And this eventually proved, in 1790, to contain strontium. 
that was the ionic form of the element. The element itself was first isolated by, uh, who again, Humphrey Davy in 1808, again using electrolysis. He's been doing very well in the S's on the periodic table, that Humphrey Davy. rather, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so elemental symbol for strontium, SR, and atomic number 38, and that puts that pretty much halfway down group two on the periodic table. In fact, uh, fits it quite nicely between calcium and barium. Now, I've heard of strontium, and I'm thinking radioactivity and Chernobyl. Mm -hmm. But before we go there, let's deal with the element strontium first. Does it have many or even any uses? (laughs) Well, again, it's possibly not an element that is widely known to the general public. In fact, it is rather abundant. It's around about 16th in abundance in the Earth's crust, but really not a whole load of uses. And in fact, the uh, thing it's best known for is the brilliant crimson red colour that it imparts to flames. And uh, as a result, it finds significant use in fireworks. Another of its compounds, strontium aluminate, is uh, also widely used in -in glow-in-the-dark paints and plastics. And so in the presence of a smidge of europium, if you remember back to that episode... If you irradiate these things with white light, they will very, very slowly emit green light. So that makes this a, wait for it, photoluminescent phosphorescent material. Photoluminescent and phosphorescent? Indeed. Okay, so we need some definitions there. Yes, please. (laughs) So a phosphorescent material gives off light as a result of the energy stored in its atoms. So as electrons drop down from higher to lower energy orbitals, they give off photons of light, each corresponding in energy to the difference in energy between the two levels. And so that's what phosphorescent is. The photoluminescent part indicates that the energy originally used to bump the electron up to the higher energy level came, in fact, from light. And in this case, we're talking light typically in the ultraviolet range. So what the strontium illuminate can do is to absorb photons when exposed to light, and then later it will slowly give off the photons. It can take several hours for the photons to be emitted, and this produces a low-level glow because the particular configuration in the strontium illuminate requires a so-called forbidden transition. Ooh, a <laughs> forbidden know. transition. Yes, Ooh. there's some sort of uh, first, second, third year chemistry going on there. It's forbidden, and so therefore it has a very, very low probability of occurring, and so that makes it non-instantaneous, which means that the glow lasts for quite some time. And that's what phosphorescent materials do. They glow for a long time because of these forbidden transitions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that it for uses? Mm, Not quite. Toothpastes that are designed for sensitive teeth contain strontium salts, so therefore it doesn't just make your pearly white enamel sparkle, if you believe the toothpaste ads, that is. What else? We've got a thing called strontium titanate, and in fact that has a higher refractive index than diamond, of all things, and apparently sparkles really beautifully, but it's also a lot softer, so you can't really use this stuff as fake diamonds. And the only other uses that I've sort of been able to uh, find, a couple of previously major uses for strontium are now no longer. So strontium hydroxide was used to extract sugar from sugar beet in the 19th century, or more precisely sugar from beet molasses, let's say. 
in a process called desugarization. Oh, it just seems a really odd thing to associate with sugar. <laughs> yeah, well, it it worked, which is, I guess, why they used it. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> and uh, strontium carbonate was also used in the production of the glass used in the old cathode ray tube TV screens. Remember those? So the strontium ions and the strontium carbonate absorbed the harmful X-rays but uh, kept the screen transparent. So there we were watching our old CRT TV screens, totally oblivious to the fact that we could have been blatted with X-ray radiation but for the presence of the strontium ions. (laughs) Speaking of X-rays and radiation, uh, time for the radioactive side of strontium, please. Mm, Yes, Okay. so if uh, people have heard of strontium, it's probably generally in the form of the strontium-90 isotope. That isotope is formed in nuclear fission and is most definitely contained in nuclear waste. And as you alluded to earlier, it was one of the most significant radioactive elements in the fallout from the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986, It's got a half-life of 29 years, and so it certainly does persist in the environment. Uh, Despite its dangerous characteristics, strontium-90 is, in fact, useful as a thing called a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, or an RTG. Just run that one past me again. Radioisotope thermoelectric generator. So why is an RTG of any use for anything? Well, the radioactive decay of strontium-90 gives out so much energy that it can actually be used to generate electricity. And in fact, a large number of strontium-90-powered RTGs have been used in things like unmanned weather stations and lighthouses. Now, most of these are in Russia, but uh, in fact, they're also in Antarctica, and they were uh, running from the 1960s to the 1990s, in fact including uh, several near McMurdo Sound and Scott Base stations on Ross Island, which are run by the US and New Zealand respectively. Well, well, from a Scottish village to Scott Base on the other side of the world. And that, of course, was Alan Blackman in the Elemental podcast, which features lots of other elements, all of which I share on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. If you'd like to stay in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Thanks for listening. But until next time, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. Or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.